Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So I have recently begun reading the Harry Potter books. I had read the first three or four books in the series uh, the summer after I graduated from college. At that point, children's literature was about the only thing my brain could handle. Um, But then there was a wait for the next one to be published, and by the time it came out a couple years later, I'd sort of lost momentum and never came back to the rest of the series. But recently, a good friend of mine who is a Harry Potter aficionado found out that I hadn't read all seven books, and she practically made it a condition of our ongoing friendship that I read the full series starting again from the beginning. (coughs) And I will happily admit that I have gotten completely sucked in. Um, In fact, I texted my friend the other day to tell her that I was holding her responsible for my Amazon bill this month. Um, The writing in these books is great, the plots are compelling, the characters are well-crafted, and they are lovable. They are good books. And of course, there's the magic. So Harry and his friends are wizards and witches, although there's none of the darkness that we usually associate with that subject in their wizardry. Some of the magic is just fun, like Quidditch which is the sport that's played on flying broomsticks. And some of the magic is immensely powerful, like the Patronus, which is a force of light and love that Harry is able to summon that saves himself and his friends from these soul-sucking forces of darkness called the Dementors. The magic in the Harry Potter books is what makes them delightfully fantastical and other. But at the same time, somehow it is also the magic that resonates with what is deepest and truest and most human in each of us. So I want to be clear here. I am not about to say that the story of Jesus' transfiguration that we read in the gospel this morning is magic. Not saying that. And I am not putting Harry Potter anywhere near on the same plane as Jesus. But the story of the Transfiguration is, to me, one of the strangest stories in all of the Gospel. And in some ways, it wouldn't feel entirely out of place if it did show up in one of the Harry Potter books. There are aspects of the Transfiguration that absolutely defy our human understanding. But at the same time, there are aspects of it that resonate deeply with us, that have that unmistakable ring of truth. And it's that both-and nature of the transfiguration that I want us to focus on today. That it's both strange and familiar. That it's both mysterious and resonant. Because I think that both and rather than the either or approach, I think the both and helps us get at the bigger picture that I think the transfiguration is about. 
about Jesus as a Messiah who is both human and divine, both transcendent and imminent, both suffering and savior. So often I think our human tendency is to try to put things, and especially things we don't really understand, into neat either-or boxes. But the transfiguration, maybe as much as almost any other story in the Gospels, it defies our attempts at neat and tidy separate categories. And in that way, it's a story that invites us into the great good news of a God who is so much bigger than we could ever comprehend and so much nearer than we could ever know. But before we get there, we need to back way up. And we have to look at what is this story of the transfiguration to begin with. It's a really key story. It appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three what are called the synoptic gospels. So anytime a story appears in all three of those, we know it's a really important one. And at this time, what Jesus does is he takes his inner circle of disciples, Peter and James and John, he takes them up onto a mountain. And up on that mountain, while he's praying, he is transfigured. Matthew and Mark use the word there for transfigured that our word metamorphosis comes out of. Luke just says that the image of his face changed. Jesus is shining, his clothes are dazzling white. Clearly, Luke and Matthew and Mark as well are just trying to find words to express something that is inexpressible. This change that they have seen come over Jesus. So he's shining white like lightning, which is, you know, quite bright. He is transfigured, his face is somehow changed. And then all of a sudden, there are two people there with him. Moses and Elijah. I've always kind of wondered how the disciples knew it was Moses and Elijah. Like, did they have name tags on? But they knew somehow Moses and Elijah were there. And Peter and James and John are just dumbfounded. They have no idea what to make of any of it. And they're terrified. Peter, in his dumbfoundedness, offers to build tents for the three of them, Jesus and Moses and Elijah. But Luke tells us that Peter said that not knowing what he said. It's clear that he's just, he's trying to respond, but he so doesn't understand what's going on that this sort of, in a way, nonsensical offer of, why don't I build you guys some tents, is what comes out of his mouth. Peter and James and John are utterly baffled. And then this cloud descends upon them, and they are terrified. And out of the cloud is this voice from heaven saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And then all of a sudden, the cloud is gone. Along with it, Moses and Elijah. And all we've got left is Jesus and Peter and James and John. And somehow all three of them, all four of them, walk down that mountain. And none of the three disciples says anything about what they've just seen. 
clearly they have no way to process what they have experienced. They can't even begin to share it with others. So what do we make of this story in all of its bizarreness? Well, there are a few things clearly going on that it's important for us to sort of clue into. As uh, good students of the Old Testament, there are a number of images and motifs that we can pick up in this story that tell us a lot. So the first is that the transfiguration happens on a mountaintop. In the Old Testament, mountaintops are frequent places where people experience, have an intense experience of the presence of God. So when Jesus is going up on a mountain, we should expect something significant to happen. That cloud that comes down, the cloud is also an image that resonates from the Old Testament. We think of the pillar of cloud that led the Israelites through the wilderness, or the cloud that descended on Mount Sinai when Moses was meeting with God. And then, of course, there's the appearance of Moses and Elijah themselves, another significant connection to the Old Testament. Both Moses and Elijah themselves had had significant experiences with God on a mountain or mountains. Moses, of course, met with God on Mount Sinai, where he received the law, including the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. Elijah on Mount Carmel had a showdown between God, between Jehovah and and Baal, and, and God proved his power against the idol Baal. And it was on Mount Horeb that God appeared to Elijah, that he said, hide in the crack of this cave and I will pass by. And, and Elijah met God in that still, small voice that followed the earthquake and the thunder. Moses and Elijah both had powerful experiences with God on a mountaintop. And of course, Moses himself had a little bit of a transfiguration from his encounters with God on Mount Sinai. That's what we heard in the reading from Exodus this morning, that when Moses came down from meeting with God, the skin on his face shone. And it did every time he would meet with God. So we have these rich resonances from the Old Testament in this story, these images that for any of Jesus's Jewish hearers um, would, have, would have resonated deeply. And also we have the fact that Moses, as the one who received the law from God and gave it to the Israelites, he really is the figure who symbolizes the whole of the, the Jewish law that God had given to his people. And Elijah is really kind of the prophet of all the prophets in the Old Testament. And so when they together appear with Jesus, and then Jesus is the one who remains after they have gone, this is a way of saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. So there's a lot going on in the imagery and and the characters in this story. And 
somehow in all of this mystery of long dead prophets and leaders of clouds and shining faces and garments, somehow what this all is is a revelation of Jesus in his glory, right? It is this picture of the full expression of who he is as the incarnate son of God. What Peter and James and John are getting to experience is like a little bit of the curtain to heaven is being pulled back and they get just a little peek inside, seeing Jesus in his fullness. What they experience is this powerful and direct and inarguable encounter with the holy. And then add on to that and they get an actual voice from heaven. Clearly, God the Father speaking to the disciples the truth about Jesus' identity. He says, this is my son, my chosen one, and you should listen to him. There are many echoes of Jesus' baptism in the transfiguration story. In Luke in Luke's account of Jesus' baptism, when he uh, has, has come up out of the river, he's praying, and Jesus hears the Father say to him, You are my son, my beloved, and with you I am well pleased. So at the baptism, the Father speaks from heaven to Jesus, and at the transfiguration, the Father speaks from heaven to the disciples about Jesus. Affirming, yes, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one you should follow. So there is a whole lot of big, fancy, impressive stuff going on in this transfiguration. There is a whole lot of divine power and glory that's on display. If you were Peter and James and John and somehow you didn't think Jesus was important before this, You absolutely think he is now. But there's more to the story. So if you're paying attention to the details when we were reading the passage just a few moments ago, you'll notice that the first verse, excuse me, of our passage this morning, verse 28, begins, Now about eight days after these sayings. Which, of course, should make us ask, after what sayings? So if you were to read back at the beginning of chapter 9, what you would find is the story of Jesus sending his disciples out on a missionary journey. They come back. All the crowds have gathered around Jesus, and they're hungry. And so Jesus does one of his feeding of the multitude miracles, this time the 5,000. And lots of people are talking in this first part of chapter 9 about who Jesus is. Herod is hearing all these stories about what Jesus is doing. And he said, I, you know, I killed John the Baptist, but who is this guy? Like, is he John the Baptist somehow doing these crazy things? Herod is asking who Jesus is. The crowds who are coming to hear him speak and to be healed by him, they're saying, who is he? And so Jesus gets his disciples away from everybody for a little bit, and he asks them, who do people say that I am? And they say, some people say you're Elijah, some people say you're a prophet. And he says, but you, who do you say 
that I am. And this is where Peter gets his great declaration. He says, you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah. It's a powerful statement. It's a key moment in the whole gospel. It's the first time one of Jesus' disciples names him in this way. And so how does Jesus respond to this fabulous, amazing declaration that his disciples have gotten it, that he is the Messiah? He says, yep. And the Son of Man will suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he will be killed and on the third day raised to life. Peter declares Jesus the Messiah, and immediately Jesus says, and that Messiah will suffer and be killed before he rises again. That is not the kind of Messiah that Peter and the other disciples had in mind. In fact, in the other Gospels, this is where Peter actually rebukes Jesus for saying that. And Jesus replies to Peter's rebuke with, get behind me, Satan. Clearly, this vision of the Messiah that Jesus is putting forward as one who will suffer and die is not a vision of the Messiah that the disciples understood or could embrace. And then Jesus goes on and he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So not only is Jesus giving them a vision of a Messiah that's not what they were expecting, I think he just gave them a vision of discipleship that was not what they were expecting. Jesus is saying that, yes, he is the Christ, as Peter has proclaimed him to be. But the Christ means that he will suffer and die, and that following the Christ means that they will suffer as well. And none of that fit with what the disciples understood or expected or wanted. And it's eight days after that that the transfiguration happens. So really we get these two images juxtaposed. This image of Jesus as the suffering Messiah, tortured and killed, And then this image of Jesus as the transfigured, glorified Son of God. And here's where I think we are tempted to move into that either-or thinking that we like so much. Which is it? Is Christ the one who will be tortured and executed like the common criminal? Or is Christ the one whose face literally glows with the glory of heaven, who keeps company with Moses and Elijah? It's tempting to want to choose one as the image of the Messiah that you like, right? Or at least to feel like you're going back and forth between them with a little bit of whiplash. But I don't think that's what the story of the transfiguration is about. Because remember, I said it's a both-and story. And there is a detail that helps us see that, a detail that only Luke includes in his account. It's in verse 31, where Moses and Elijah spoke of Jesus' departure 
which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That word for departure is actually exodus. What will happen to Jesus in Jerusalem is an exodus. Not just an exit, as in where he takes his leave from earth. But it's an exodus where Jesus frees his people in the ultimate act of deliverance. It's an act of deliverance that takes place on a cross and is evidenced by an empty tomb. So here, right in the midst of the glory of the transfiguration, is suffering. Right in the midst of deliverance is crucifixion. In Jesus, we have the ultimate both and. Glory and suffering, deliverance and death. They cannot be separated, however much we might want to do so. Why does it matter? Why does it matter that the transfiguration story is a both-and story? Well, for two reasons. One, I think that it draws us back and keeps us rooted in the mystery of this story. The both-and nature of the transfiguration reminds us that in God we are involved with something so much bigger than we will ever be able to understand. And when we are put in that place of before the mystery of God, it puts us in the right posture before God, a posture of humility and dependence and awe. So the both and nature of this story of the transfiguration reminds us of just the the bigness, the vastness, the transcendence of God. But that both and nature of the transfiguration also, I think, roots us very deeply in the here and now. Because we experience life as both and in so many ways. There are times where we are full of grief and we rejoice that a loved one is now with Jesus. There are times when, you know, one aspect of our life is going really well and another aspect of our life is deeply painful. There are so many ways that life is both and for us. And so the both-and-ness of the transfiguration reminds us that Jesus is a both-and God. That he can be right here with us in the midst of the messiness of the both-and. The transfiguration reminds us of the transcendence of God and of his glory and of the imminence of God, of his presence right here in the midst of us. And that he can hold all of it, including the messiness of the both ands of our lives. You've heard me read before um, poems from the British poet Malcolm Gite, who's also a a priest in the Church of England. And he has a, a poem for the transfiguration. 
And I think it captures some of that mystery and some of that, uh, that way that in the both and of the transfiguration, it speaks to what is really true. We think about, as I started with Harry Potter, you have the idea that the magic is both totally other and somehow it speaks to what's most true. In the, tr- in, in the transfiguration, we have a display of God's glory that reminds us that he is bigger than all and that he is about the truest of the true. And so I want to read and close with this poem from Malcolm Geith. For that one moment, in and out of time, on that one mountain where all moments meet, the daily veil that covers the sublime in darkling glass fell dazzled at his feet. There were no angels full of eyes and wings, just living glory full of truth and grace. The love that dances at the heart of things shone out upon us from a human face. And to that light, the light in us leaped up. We felt it quicken somewhere deep within. A sudden blaze of long extinguished hope trembled and tingled through the tender skin. Nor can this this blackened sky, this darkened scar, eclipse that glimpse of how things really are. The transfiguration is a glimpse of how things really are. Thanks be to God. Amen.